Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, we're completing our series on the seven woes of the Pharisees. Kind of leads into a lament and then chapter 24, um, end times uh, discussion. But this is Christ's uh, sermon that's a monologue to the Pharisees. And against the scribes and Pharisees, he's pronouncing woe judgments. Uh, basically making a declaration of the hardness of their heart. And this is the seventh one and the final one, though each of the woe categories are captured as uh, four outline points. And just to give a little review of them, I'll go through the four points. But these woe judgments are provocations of Christ's indignation. So these are the things that Jesus is mad at. This is what angers Christ. If you want to know what upsets the Lord, these are those things. And I think that because they upset the heart of the Lord, we should be aware of them to basically shrink back from being tempted to fall into these kinds of categories. First category is woe to the pragmatist, verses 13 through 15. This is Matthew 23 in review. Um, he said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, word hypocrites, play actor, play actors, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Literally, people were play acting, um, being followers of God, and they were barring the door from people really entering in, no matter how much effort they put into it. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. We've been talking about that. If you win people by fleshly means, through exertion, working from sort of your own strength, to try to change somebody's heart, you're just going to harden them up twice as hard as you are. And um, it'll make them a son of hell. It sends people in a trajectory of judgment and condemnation because their heart really isn't alive. Verse 16 is the second category, woe to the blind. The word blind fool or blind guide is used here by Christ where he's talking about people leading people into blind religion and the religion they were doing and acting out is uh, they were making oaths to temples and to the, the altar and the sacrifice and the gold, all the different external things of religion. That's what they were placing their faith in instead of God. So they were lying to themselves and they were lying to God, making these half-truth promises in the name of religion, working from the outside in rather than the inside out. They were working by fleshly means to try to make themselves safe with God when they were really failing altogether. And then thirdly, woe to the hypocrites. This is what we covered last week where it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, verse 23, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. People were tithing. They were following the Old Testament law. They were giving a tenth. But at the same time, they were ignoring the weightier things, which is justice and mercy and love for people. And so they were, again, blind people leading the blind astray. They were acting, they were play-acting in hypocrisy with inverted priorities. They had reverse cleanliness. Look at verse 25. Woe to you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You're this sort of 
outwardly cleaned up person, you're religious, you're making oaths, you're making promises um, externally, it's all this big show, you're converting people through your own means of pragmatic gimmickry, you're doing all these things, and yet you're empty inside, you're full of greed and self-indulgence instead. And then finally, verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, your external facades. You've scrubbed the outside of the tomb really well, but inward you're entombed in your own self-righteousness as if buried in your own death cave with your own bones around you. Finally, the last woe is woe to the murderers. So woe to the pragmatists, woe to the blind, woe to the hypocrites, and woe to the murderers, verses 29 through 36. Let me read this section for us. It says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents. You brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on earth, from the righteous, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the, the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. This, my friends, is a heavy, heavy passage. And so a heavy theme point is what I'm giving, woe to the murderers. And you say, well, how is this going to apply to me? Because I really haven't murdered anyone. I've not really thought about murdering someone. I don't plan to murder anyone. So I'm going to just check out for a while while Jesus beats up on the Pharisees. Well, I think it's important to understand that the sin of murder at its seed form is the sin of hate. If you want to take it even in terms of the emotion of hatred, think of anger, being angry at somebody, harboring ill will against somebody, being unrelenting against somebody, somebody who's unwilling to forgive someone, unwilling to bury the hatchet, unwilling to make things right. This is where you have ought against someone. You hate them. You hate them. And this is the sin that Jesus is provoked by. This is a sin that we, um, we want crucified on our behalf at the cross. <laughs> we want this to not be what we have in our hearts. Remember, the woe judgments are judgments on the Pharisees, but they're also warnings to everyone else. It's the woe, don't go there. Don't do these sins. Don't be party to this kind of judgment. And the Pharisees, those that would listen would be those like Nicodemus who would repent, but most here are headed into a trajectory of final judgment under this woe. It's a warning that could be heeded, but nevertheless, was not being heeded by the Pharisees. But we should hear this warning. We should be woed up in our own tracks so that we're not headed in the direction of the Pharisee. 
at any level, at any level with any of these sins. And these sins are subtle, by the way. I mean, being pragmatic or blind to certain things or play acting sometimes, I mean, they're, they're things that we've all participated in, I'm sure. And at the same time, they're very dangerous if you give over to them, and especially the, the sin of murder. Think of murder, where you're hating someone in your heart. I mean, that, that is a sin that, if un, left unrepented of, will send you to hell. Revelation 21.8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, and for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Revelation twenty two fifteen says you're on the outside. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. You might say, I would never do that. Well, all of this list of sin is meant to warn us to never do that. To never do that on the heart level, though, is the issue. To not be there in your heart. People presume they never would. And yet Christ is calling witnesses to testify against the Pharisees to say they actually are these murderous people, even though they were presuming that they would never be the murderer. That's the point of the text. The Bible says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every fact be confirmed. And Jesus is calling court into session. He uses the word witness here. He uses the word the sentence of hell here. So there is courtroom sort of drama happening here. And he's calling witnesses to confirm facts against the Pharisees. He's calling three witnesses to testify against the scribes and Pharisees. And the first witness he calls to the stand is their past. He's saying, I'm calling out your past to testify against you. Look at verse 29. It says, woe to you. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. Now, what, are you, what is he talking about here? In Josephus, Josephus uh, the early um, Pharisee and historian of the first century, he said that Pharisees regularly actually did, kind of in the, the, um, out of the line of Herod's influence, they began to build monuments to people like Isaiah Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the great prophets of old. Maybe they built a monument to David. They built a monument to um, the names of the minor prophets. Uh, they, they would build these monuments as a testament to their righteousness. They were the slain. They were the martyrs. They were martyred for God. They stood for God. They stood in the gap and, and warned Israel not to apostatize, not to go against idols, not to, not to fall prey to vain, false religion. Basically, exactly what the Pharisees were falling into. And they're, they're memorializing these men who stood up for God. And basically, Jesus is saying, that's actually, this is actually a witness against you from the past. You're memorializing them. And you're calling them the ones who are, verse 29, the righteous. But ironically, Christ is revealing something that's behind this um, hypocritical act. Look at verse 30, he's saying, this is what the Jews, the Pharisees were saying as they built these monuments. If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So they're going, look, our our forefathers, we might respect them, but if we had been there, 
We would not have done what they did. They killed the prophets. They turned them over. I mean, Hebrews 11 is the testimony of this, remember? Verse 35, some were tortured, refusing to accept release, that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. Some were stoned. They were sawn in two. Isaiah's testimony is that he was sawn in two. They were killed with the sword, and they went about in sheepskins and and sheep of goats skins and destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Think of John the Baptist, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. These Pharisees who were building these monuments were saying, look, had we been there when Isaiah was around, Jeremiah was around, Ezekiel was around, Daniel was around, we would not have done these things to them. We would not have murdered them. We wouldn't have persecuted them. We are better than that. That's exactly, it's this presumption that you're better off than you really are. They were claiming superiority to their forefathers and saying that they were clean compared to them. This is always a dangerous thing to do, to compare yourself to somebody else, to say, I'm better off than that person is. I presume that I would never have done what that person did. We, see, we would see things much more clearly than they did. This is, I don't know if you ever took, um, if you've ever taken Bible class or theology class, but this is a, a question that comes up when you're studying Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are the ones that sinned on our behalf. They're the ones that plunged the world into depravity and into the fall and to all the sin that we experience. It's because they were put to the test and they failed, and they failed on our behalf. It's called federal headship. And I don't know if you've ever been tempted, if you've been in a Bible study, to think, you know, uh, is that fair that they got to, you know, take our test for us and their failure is why I have to deal with my sin every single day in my own heart? And then you take it one step further. And if I was there and I had had that test to take, then I would have done a whole lot better than Eve did or Adam did in that situation. That's the sin of presumption, to believe that you're better off than you really are. And even though Adam and Eve started from neutral, they weren't sinners until they sinned. Why would we think that they aren't the the highest representation of what humanity would do? And that's exactly the case. And if we were there, we would have done the same thing. And so the Pharisees are in their blindness, in their hubris, in their pride, in their hypocrisy. They're building these monuments going, you know what? We would have taken care of Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and David and all these prophets. We would have taken care of them and we would not have killed them like our forefathers did. And Jesus says, no, those forefathers testify against you. They are exhibit A for why you actually are the murderers that you think that you are not. This is the danger of pride and blindness. Think of the prodigal's older brother who wouldn't receive his younger brother who came back in repentance. Just this, this danger of thinking, you know, I'm so much better than that other person. I'm so much better off, and I deserve so much more. Well, let's look at the second witness, verse 31. This is what Jesus says. Thus you witnessed, witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Stop there. This is the second witness. This is the present witness. Christ is turning their confession against them, saying you are actually related to the people that are witnessing against you. 
You're saying that you're connected to them, and they were ethnically connected to their forerunning Jews, but at the same time, they're spiritually connected. Just as they were murderous of Christ, these Jewish Pharisees are planning and plotting to kill Christ right now. Think about that. They're sitting there building their statues to these prophets saying, you know what, we would have never killed them. And Jesus is calling them out in the moment and saying, you actually witness against yourselves because you're the ones who want to kill me right now. You are that murderer. You are that son of hell, son of the devil. John 8, you are of your father, the devil. That's what Jesus called the Pharisees in John 8. He said, you're not of your father, Abraham. You're of your father, the devil, And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He's saying, Jesus is saying there, your character is murderous. Your character is hate. So it's a real-time indictment. In Matthew 21, 46 they wanted to arrest Jesus. They were plotting to do that. In John eleven fifty three, it specifically says, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. They were planning, they were conspiring. And as they're wanting, I mean, this is hypocrisy. It's like you're wanting to murder Jesus. And at the same time, you're rationalizing why you're not a murderer. Do you see what's happening? That's what Jesus is doing. He's, he's provoked by this. He's angry at this. Saying, this is wrong. He commands them out of this anger to fill it up. Verse 32, fill up then the measure of your fathers. Finish off what they began. They were killing the prophets from the past. You're connected to them, not only ethnically, not only in religion, but you're connected in your own heart. Just finish it off. This is what Jesus ultimately said to Judas Iscariot at Passover. The devil had taken over his heart. Whatever you plan to do, do quickly. He was giving them over to finish the job. Finish me off. Christ pulls no punches here. He goes on to say, they are serpents and vipers. Verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? He's classifying them in the same class that classification that John the Baptist did when the Pharisees and scribes came to him for baptism, to do a baptism of repentance as a show, to just perform in front of the people. And John the Baptist read their hearts and said, no, you're a snake. You're a viper. Now, I know there are certain people who love snakes. I'm not one of them. I don't love snakes for the reason that snakes exist. They exist to be like unpredictable, scary, cunning. Um, They'd never relax, um, I guess. And, you know, they could just bite you at any one moment. And that's, that's, that's what Jesus is calling them. He's saying, you're crafty. You're like the serpent of Genesis 3, 1. Satan himself, you're slithering in and you're, and you have a family, a group of you together who are conspiring to kill me. How will you escape the sentence of hell? How will you escape this sentence, this trajectory, which could again be a little bit of of an appeal for them to repent? How will you escape this? It's like Jesus just looking at them going, I can't believe how 
far gone you are in your heart. Is hell a foregone conclusion? Well, no, but they're moving in that direction speedily, and they need to repent of their hate and of their anger. So the first witness is the past, their past. The second witness is their present. And then finally, the third witness is your future, meaning Jesus saying to them, your future, their future. It's the third witness. It's who they will soon engage. Only Jesus can call this witness because only Jesus can see the future. He's looking at the past. He's looking in their hearts at the present. He's also looking at the future, and he sees what they're going to do to the church, to the church. The persecution that you're going to levy against the church will also be on your head. You're not just the murderer of Jesus. You're the murderer of the church. Christ calls this third witness. It sounds counterintuitive because Christ is going to build his church through the gifts that he brings together. It says, therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogue and persecute from town to town. What's he saying here? I'm going to send you prophets. Well, in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, the Bible talks about how God provides prophets and he provides, um, you know, provided the apostles for the building of the church, he provides teachers, he provides people with gifts in the body of Christ to, to build it up, to strengthen it in unity so that it looks like um, it reflects Christ. That's what the church is all about. He, he draws us together. Well, people all over the world for all the ages of the church have been persecuted, some killed, some imprisoned martyrs for Christ. We've been shielded from much of that in our country thus far. But the promises to these religious leaders that they were going to kill and crucify. The word crucify is a word for Roman execution where people like Jesus were nailed to crosses. The Jews are indicted though for handing over people to Roman imprisonment, Roman jailing, Roman flogging. All the persecution that took place under Rome in Acts is ultimately also um, measured against the Jews who gave the church over to Rome in persecution. Paul pre-Christ was named Saul and he was, he was in the name of God, he was basically um, gathering together Christians from town to town, Acts 8, 1 to 4, Acts 9, 1 to 2, testify to how he was a persecutor of the church. He was a harasser of the church. And then Paul himself was driven from town to town, Acts 13, Acts 14, talk about how he was moved from Iconium to then Lystra to then Acts 14 and Acts 17 to Thessalonica, and then again in Acts 17 to Berea, and then Corinth, and then Jerusalem, and then Caesarea. This is all spanning through the different chapters of Acts. You have Paul being moved around in persecution where things were shut down and had to be reopened in different towns and, and, and the church was being built through all of that persecution. I mean, listen to Paul's testimony in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. The Jews weren't beating him, but they were delivering him over. They were not in their unbelief. They were delivering him over 
to Roman persecution. Three times I was beaten with rods. You remember one of them was with, with Silas where they were beaten and then shackled in the Philippian jail. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I think he was stoned in Lystra. Remember he was left for dead and he kind of revived. He was shipwrecked a night and a day. I was adrift at sea. This is his testimony. The next verse here in Matthew 23 is even more harrowing than the first. Verse 35, listen to this. So that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on earth. On you. That phrase right there is is heavy and you need to let it, it just sort of sink in to understand what Christ is saying, he's saying that all of the persecution that will come on the church is on you, Pharisees. It's on what you're doing right now. You in your heart, you're murdering me in your heart. You're saying you would have never do it. You would have never done it in the past. You would never do it now, but you want to do it. You are doing it and you will do it. And all of this is coming on you. This is on your account. This is the persecution, the bloodshed that you're going to give to the church is something that you will have to pay for into eternity. Christ, like it or not, is answering why Christians are persecuted. They're validating God's judgment against sinners. It's one of the clear reasons for persecution is to show that people are rejecting Christ. They're rejecting the gospel. They're rejecting the truth. And so they respond in that rejection with persecution. You say, but believers are sent to evangelize. We are, and we'll win some, but in some cases, we'll win some by losing ourselves, by losing our life. It's persecution. It's the full guilt of the sin is levied against the unrepentant sinners. You say, how does this apply practically? Well, if you ever ask yourself, if you ever ask yourself the question, why am I taunted for my faith? Why do people make fun of me for believing in Jesus? Why... Why am I marginalized? Why am I missing out on opportunities around the job? What's happening here? Well, when someone is aggravated by your holiness and, and is aggravated to where it exacerbates their sin, where it foments and it shows up more and more and more, it's leaving them with only one of two options. One, to harden up or two, to believe in Jesus. You either respond to Christ or you reject him altogether. And you may not realize this, but you as a Christian might be the impetus for that person having to make that decision. You, by your life, by your holy life, at your job, in your world, you're planted there to bring someone to a decision. You're taking someone to the crossroads where they will believe or reject. That's what your holy life will do when you turn down on the holiness when you, you know, sort of turn the knob down on living for Christ or for speaking of Christ outwardly, when, when you hide your witness, you're sort of turning down, you're tuning down that effect and you don't want to do that. You want to live boldly for Christ so that people will be brought to the crossroads. You say, I don't know how to witness. Just live for Christ. Live out loud for Christ. That's it. Just be unashamed of Jesus out loud in front of people, and you're doing it. 
It's happening. The chemical reaction is taking place. You know, the droplet is put into the dish and it's happening where you are. And there's repercussions for people who sin against the church. It says, so that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on earth. My old college professor said, all means all and that's all all means. It's the idea of the combined weight of every murder ever committed is being held against them. That's the power and pressure of this text. How big is this? Well, it says, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. Now, there's some debate on who Zechariah is here, but there's no debate on who Abel is. Abel is the first person on earth that was killed, that was murdered by Cain. Killed by Cain. And so, in essence, what Jesus is saying is from Abel to Zechariah, from A to Z, everyone in between that's ever been murdered, this is the corpus of murder. This is being held to your account. Zechariah, I guess, could be John the Baptist's father. It's probably a reference to the minor prophet, Zechariah, though, because it says uh, it puts him in the line of the son of Berechiah, and this is exactly how Zechariah is introduced in Zechariah one one as the son of Zech, um, the son of Bechariah. So that's probably who he is. But there's also a reference in Second Chronicles to a Zechariah who was martyred, and I'll read about this real quick to you. It's it's 2 Chronicles 24, 20 to 22. This is where Joash was king. He was king in the southern kingdom of Judah after the kingdoms had divided, and there was spiritual unfaithfulness. Zechariah, this particular Zechariah, there are 20 of them named in the Old Testament. This one stands up. And it says, the spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. Because you've forsaken him, he's forsaken you. What did they do? They conspired against him, and by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus, Joash the king did not remember the kindness of Jehoiada. He didn't remember Zechariah's father. And Zechariah's father had shown him, but killed, Joshua killed his son, Jehoiada's son, this particular Zechariah. And it says, and when he was dying, he said, may the Lord see and avenge. So, There's full responsibility on Joash here. It's just a reflection of the full responsibility that the scribes and Pharisees were carrying. Some say that they see 2 Chronicles in the Hebrew canon as the final book, the history book that was reflecting back 800 years earlier. And so from from Abel's death all the way to Zechariah, A to Z, you have a complete corpus of the testimony of murder and bloodshed that was on their head. Verse 36 broadens this even farther. Look at this. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So it's not just for the Pharisees. It's not just for the scribes. It's for the whole of unbelieving Israel. All of this bloodshed will come on them if they do not repent. 
Again, seven woe judgments, cumulative and, and growing in the weight of each one, are laid at their feet right now. And the scribes and Pharisees were the blind leading the blind, and they were culpably responsible for this sin. And if Israel doesn't repent, then it will fall on, the judgment for these things will fall upon their heads. All of these things will come upon this generation. And we know that Israel in AD 70 was decimated by Rome. So that could be a foreshadowing of that. But we also know that many of the people in that area, in that region at Pentecost believed, thousands believed, and the church was born. And many Israelites, many of the early church was the early Jews that were converts who did repent. So again, let's finish practically. You say, well, that was a great Bible lesson. Thank you very much. I'm never going to be a scribe, never going to be a Pharisee. I don't even want to be one of those people. And I'm never going to be a murderer. I don't plan to be. I don't believe I ever could do that. I don't believe I ever planned to do that. So how does this apply to me? Well, um, 1 John 3 takes it to the heart because murder is in seed form your hate for your brother. So let me ask you this. Even if you've never conspired to kill somebody, do you, have you ever hated somebody? Have you ever held, held hate in your heart? Have you ever felt anxious when you come around somebody because something's unresolved? That's, that's a symptom of the hate that you're still holding against them, having ought against somebody. Hatred. It's a dastardly sin. It's one that is deceptive that we can talk ourselves out of and go, you know, if I were in that situation, I would never hate somebody like that person is, right? I'm better than that. I presume I'm better than hate, but don't do that. Just look in the mirror and think about it. Do you have ought against somebody? Is there a sin in your heart that needs to be dealt with? Well, just like with adultery begins with lust, murder begins with Hate, and hate is the root that has to be dealt with. First John 3, I'm just going to shepherd you through First John 3, 10 through 16 to kind of deal with this sin for a second. John says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. It's real binary here. It's real clear and obvious who's of God and who's of the devil. This is the courtroom scene again. How are you going to be? Are you going to be pronounced not guilty or fully guilty? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So if your heart is one that is filled with unrighteousness and has hate in it instead of love for your brother, you're not of God. Verse 11, this is 1 John 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. That's what Jesus always taught. Verse 12, we should not be like Cain. Remember that story. Who was of the evil one who murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Why did Cain murder Abel? Because Abel's righteousness basically left Cain dirty and it, it provoked Cain to a hardness of heart that became inescapable to him. It's what I said you'll do as a Christian witness. Abel was that witness. He gave a righteous 
offering to the Lord. He was a true follower of the Lord, and his brother Cain was not. His brother Cain tried to do it in his own flesh, tried to give a fleshly offering out of his own self-righteousness. The Lord rejected it. It made him more and more angry, and he focused all of his anger at righteous Abel. It exposed, it exacerbated, it fomented all of his anger and all of his hate and all of that. He could not, you know, it's the old, like, if you can't stay in the heat, get out of the kitchen. He couldn't stay in the kitchen. It was just too hot in there to be near Abel because of his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. His, His righteous brother was a mirror reflection back to him of how evil he really was. Verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, That the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. True Christians are the ones who love, are the ones who are soft, are the ones who forgive. You don't hang on to hate, you love. You love in a self sacrificial way. You don't love because someone's good outweighs their bad or they did enough good for you. You just love them because you project Christ's love on them. Verse 15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If you don't love, you're going to abide in death. And if you're hating your brother, you're a murderer. You are this person. And no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You're not going to heaven. You're not on a trajectory to heaven if you're a murderer. Can you repent of being a murderer now? Yes. Can you repent of the hate that has you on that trajectory to hell now? Yes. Repent of it, which means seek forgiveness. Soften up. Say, Lord, be honest with the Lord about it. Say, I need to forgive this person. And not only do I need to let something go, I need to love this person because I'm a Christian. How do we get there from here? Verse 16. We have to be softened by the gospel. Look at verse 16. This is 1 John 3.16. It's the the 3.16 of 1 John. This is John writing these words at the end of his life, pastoring these churches, loving the churches in the early church age, and he's saying, by this we know love, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. How do you begin to love people? First, be softened by the love of Christ. He did this for me. He loved me while I was a sinner. I'm the hateful Pharisee. I'm the murderous scribe. I'm the one that would not have loved Jesus. And yet, he changed my heart to love him. He laid his life down for me so that I would love him. I love Jesus because he changed me from the inside out. And so that's why I love other people and can give my heart For them, to them. Passing from spiritual death to spiritual life is is an amazing thing. It's an amazing testimony to be a believer. Um, The unbeliever's life is a life of selfishness, isn't it? But I just want to point this out. It's, It's bondage. You're bound up in your selfishness. These woe judgments, they, they expose the cage that you're in if you're not a believer. You're under the woes of Christ. You're, you're provoking Christ in your own sin. 
And if you'll just look to Christ and say, you died on the cross for me. And allow him to soften your heart. Because he not only died on the cross to save us from our sins, but he rose on the third day. And his resurrection is the open door where the cage door flies open and sort of comes unhinged and we just walk out in freedom. The freedom in Christ is to love people and to love people that even hate us.